0: is Battlegrounds.
1: On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the Hellenic Republic, Greece, a strategic ally of the United States and one of the most influential countries in history. Our guest, Alexandros Papianou, is the permanent representative of Greece to the UN and international organizations. He previously served as spokesperson at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Greece, as well as the director of press and media service at the ministry. He worked for seven years at the political affairs and security policy division of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and worked in the policy planning unit of the NATO Secretary General's office. From the second millennium BCE, the Greek mainland was home to Mycenaean civilization, which had a highly sophisticated economy, arts, and a writing system that recorded the earliest Greek texts. During the Archaic period, Greek communities formed into city-states and colonized much of the Mediterranean. In the Classical period, 480 to 323 BCE, the two most powerful Greek city-states, Athens and Sparta, sparred for control of the region in the First and Second Peloponnesian Wars. City-states reached the peak of their power and cultural production. It was the time of playwrights, including Sophocles and Euripides, as well as philosophers like Plato and Socrates. Starting in 336 BCE, Alexander the Great led the kingdom of Macedonia to conquer Greek city-states, the Persian Empire, and beyond, spreading Greek culture and institutions in the process. After Alexander's death in 323 BCE, his generals and descendants vied for control of the massive empire which they divided into several kingdoms and ushered in the phase of Greek history known as the Hellenistic period. Due to its strategic geographical location, Greece has experienced incursions by Romans, Franks, Venetians, Ottoman Turks, and most recently, Italians and Nazis during World War II. From 146 BCE through 1821 CE, three empires ruled Greece, the Romans, the Byzantines, and the Ottomans. Contrasting Roman and Byzantine rule, the Ottomans forced Greek assimilation to Ottoman laws and customs. But in the 18th century, Greek enlightenment saw Greece experience a renewed sense of national identity. In 1821, Greece became the first nation to seek its independence from the Ottoman Empire. The United States established diplomatic relations with Greece in 1868. Greece fought in the First and Second Balkan Wars in the 1910s and gained land and island territories from Ottoman and Bulgarian forces. In 1940, Greece successfully repelled Benito Mussolini's forces, yet was unable to fend off Nazi German forces the following year. Britain and Greece forced a Nazi withdrawal in 1944. In 1952, Greece joined NATO and has been a strong partner in international fora, as well as in bilateral economic, energy, trade and investment, and defense and security initiatives. Greece was the hardest-hit European country after the 2008 financial crisis. The IMF, European Central Bank, and European Commission bailed Greece out for a total of 240 billion euros. Yet the bailouts primarily serviced Greece's international loans. The debt crisis continues to affect the Greek economy, but Greece has made tremendous economic strides and shown resilience in the face of COVID-19. Greece and the United States launched a 2018 strategic dialogue to bolster bilateral cooperation. And in 2022, the Greek Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced its Strategic Plan 2022 through 2025, to strengthen global security, prosperity, and peace, while safeguarding democratic institutions, human rights, and fundamental principles of international law. We welcome Alexandros Papayanu to discuss Greece's perspective on international security, energy security, migration, and competitions with authoritarian, hostile regimes.
0: Alexandros Papayuano. Welcome to Battlegrounds. It's it's great to see you after so many months during COVID when we didn't speak. And welcome to Battlegrounds.
2: General, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much for hosting me today. I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation.
0: Well, when we last spoke, you were standing up a sort of a national security advisor position in Greece. Now you're going to talk to us about the Greek perspective on on our world from Geneva in in your new posting. I hope the transition went well, and, and of course, we have much to talk about. Our, our, I think Greece is ideally positioned to give us unique insights, uh, because you look outward from the Mediterranean, and I remember your old foreign minister, Nikos Kotsia, who so I got to know him when I was National Security Advisor, whom I called my favorite socialist. He was a really fun, affable guy. Uh, we had some great discussions about it, and I'm really looking forward uh, to, to today's episode. So I, so I wondered if you might if you might start, you know, just by sharing that perspective. How do you see the world from the Mediterranean these days? It's been a, kind of a rough few years, right? I'm mean, going back to Greece's, you know, the financial crisis that you're coming out of, I think, in, looking pretty strong right now. Uh, but there have been a series of crises in the Mediterranean and, you know, of course, in Africa that's affected Greece as well with the migration crisis. And, and now we have a war, you know, in, the, in, in Ukraine and in the Black Sea region. But I'd love to just hear your perspective on how you see the world today.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, as you said, Greece has basically over the, let's say the last three years has gone out of substantial economic and financial, and by the way, also social crisis. And we had, and actually, as a matter of fact, just like everywhere else in the world, COVID struck, which also didn't help. Although I have to admit that uh, we managed to address it in a rather, let's say, Successful ways, especially in the first stages, when you know there were no vaccines and all these issues, and we had, let's say, far fewer, let's say, um, people uh, who lost their lives than in other places in uh, in the world. But having said that, we are lucky or unlucky, it depends on which way to see it, to be in a very interesting neighborhood. And when I'm saying interesting neighborhood, basically. We are at the crossroads, first of all, of three continents, that is Europe, Asia, and Africa, uh, at the edge actually of Europe, but really touching on Asia and Africa. And we are directly affected and we have a direct interest in developments in all these three continents. And just, I mean, very broadly, then we can dwell in through one of these issues. First of all, let me start, of course, with um, the Russian invasion on Ukraine, which was, a, let's say, a game changer, for everybody in the world, but and especially for us, it was a big change because it was really, and we took a very how uh, to say principled position
0: because. And Alexandros, events, I, I should say you're talking about 2014 as well as the renewed invasion of February yes. 24th of 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 last year. Yeah,
2: yeah. 2014 was actually the wake up call. I mean, the annexation of Crimea, actually, as a matter of fact, people tend to forget that it was the very first time that actually uh, European territory from another country was annexed into another country. So that was the very first violation, let's say, uh, of, uh, with the annexation. And by the way, we always say here in Greece, of course, the first, let's say, uh, in, invasion and occupation of territory in Europe, post-World War II was not actually Crimea, it was Cyprus in 74, although people, many people tend to forget that. Um, but 2014, as I say, was a wake-up call, the annexation of Crimea, but also the proxy one, the hybrid war that, was, and sometimes was not so hybrid, that was taking place in the Donbas, in Eastern Ukraine, where, um, as a matter of fact, also lived, and I say lived because they're no longer there, also a Greek community, people of Greek origin. And uh, I was actually, lucky enough to be able to visit that region a month before the invasion. I was there in January 22 in, in Mariupol.
0: No, I think, you know, I, I think, of course, uh, and one of the reasons why your territorial integrity is important to Greece is because there are others, Turkey in particular, yeah. well, <laughs> who, exactly. who, lay, who lay claim to, to Turkish territory. And and I wondered if you might say something about the geostrategic competition with with Turkey, how you see the situation now. It's been quite a volatile time in the Eastern Euro- uh, Mediterranean as well with with Greece and Turkey and others laying claim to uh, to oil and gas reserves, for for example, there are the the long time contestation of 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 Aegean territories uh, mm-hmm. like uh, Castelorizo, if I pronounce that right, and Rhodes yes. and so forth. So, so could you share with us, you know, the, just the tensions with Turkey, you know, a fellow member of NATO, uh, which, and uh, and and how you see the situation today and and what you think the trajectory is going forward into the future. Of course, we're speaking uh, on the eve of a Turkish election scheduled, for, scheduled for, for May. And elections, I think, still do matter in Turkey, even though, even though uh, President Erdogan has, has really taken control and his party have taken control of key institutions in Turkey. But I'd love to hear your perspective on, on Greece and Turkey.
2: Okay, thank you very much. That's a very interesting question, but exactly. Let me go back. Exactly. Ukraine was very important for us. And as I said, it's a principal position because basically, you know, we think that all countries in the world should abide by the principles of the UN Charter that, you know, respect the territorial integrity and sovereignty of all states, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. And this is also very important for us because precisely we are facing, I would say, unfortunately, a direct threat from... um, from our Eastern neighbor and also a fellow NATO ally, as you mentioned, Turkey, which for several years now, unfortunately, has laid the claim that actually, if Greece extends the ter- its territorial waters in the Aegean Sea, that is basically uh, the, the islands of the Aegean Sea, that this is a, what they call a casus belli, a, case, a cause of war. So basically they're threatening, and this goes back into the mid nineties. So it's nothing new. Uh, unfortunately, it's almost 30 years old. Um, Turkey, as a matter of fact, since I would say the mid 70s, has gradually through several different um, procedures, I don't need to mention, has basically um, contesting Greek sovereignty over its uh, islands in the Aegean, as well as the sea in the between the Greek mainland and the islands. And in the beginning, it started talking about control of the flight information region. So basically, the airspace. And then he started talking about search and rescue, so things that are not necessarily, let's say, linked to hardcore sovereignty or territorial integrity. But as I said, in '95, they laid a claim and they said, Would, If you extend the territorial waters to 12 nautical miles, which, by the way, almost, well, I think, all the countries in the world have done, I mean, it's part of the uh, UN law of the sea that. Countries can have uh, territorial waters that extend up to 12 nautical miles. So it's nothing that illegal. I mean, on the contrary, it's the definition of a <laughs> legal act. Turkey is claiming that they will, you know, they will, um, this is a cause of war. Now, unfortunately, and this brings us basically to the, the more, let's say, recent past. These claims have taken a new uh, dimension. Now, Turkey is actually um, claiming even that the Greek sovereignty over islands in, as I say, the Aegean that have been given to Greece, some of them in 1923, some in 1947. So we're talking at least, you know, about uh, at least 75 years of continuous sovereignty. They claim that the sovereignty of of these islands is contested. And this is actually a very Warring trend because they they take it a step further. They are saying that basically we are not actually we don't have control and that they might take action. I mean there were even some statements by Turkish officials which are, could be considered a bit I'd uh, say uh, interesting. I mean to put it very mildly interesting. Like you know if you don't uh, be careful uh, we will come at night and conquer your islands and stuff like that. Now. This is not, I mean, the way that we see that an ally should be talking to a fellow ally. On top of it, in a period, I mean, independently of the period, but on top of it in a period where we are facing a huge crisis, uh, huge, I mean, in in Ukraine. So we are thinking that this Turkish behavior is not, uh, let's say, to put it again, very
0: mildly responsible. this is one of the issues that we're facing. I think just for our viewers, you know, Tur- Turkey's problematic, right? Turkey's an important country. I mean, if you just look where, where it is geostrategically and and its important role in NATO, it's bridge between East, East and West. Uh, it's control over over key uh, over key ch- choke points, and you know, really being you know, lying between <laughs> lying between Europe and and Asia, and and so it's it's disappointing for all of us to see some of Turkey's behavior, which includes. I know you're going to talk about the territorial. Um, claims and 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 the Eastern uh, Mediterranean, but just for our viewers, in, in the last several years, Turkey's purchased S four hundred missiles from from Russia, for example, which which compromises potentially you know some of NATO uh, technologies associated, especially with fifth generation aircraft, the F thirty uh, five. Turkey has has been. It kind of sitting on the fence a little bit uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine in, in terms of buying you know oil from from Russia, transiting Russian oil while at the same time you know, su- supporting uh, Ukraine with some some weapon systems and and with some diplomatic support and 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 being uh, trying to be a force for good in terms of food security and grain shipments. But Turkey is also you know has now opened the door to Assad in uh, Syria has been. Uh, has been encroaching in, into, into, into Northeastern Syria in a way that jeopardizes the fight against ISIS. I mean, kind of, kind of the list goes on in terms of uh, disappointing behavior by Turkey. Um, and, and so I, this is a, yeah, this is a point, a problem for NATO, for Greece, for, for, for all of us, I think, if Turkey drifts away uh, from Europe and the West and uh, drifts towards what, I mean, I, I guess, I guess Russia, I mean, I, Iran, I mean, China, I mean, it seems to be a losing proposition to me, but I think we're at a turning point for Turkey. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know, on, on the claims uh, in the Aegean and, and, and the Eastern Mediterranean and, and why that's so important to Greece. Well, just
2: to go back exactly on what you said, because this is very important. I mean, I mentioned about the trouble. I mean, let's say the challenges that Greek, Turkey is basically, let's say, contesting Greek sovereignty in the Aegean, but this is just part of the wider picture. And this is the other thing. The rest of the picture is that basically Turkey, especially over the last years, I have to admit, has developed into an expansionist, if I can call it like that, foreign policy, where exactly they are present in Northern Syria, they are present in Northern Iraq, so all their, let's say, land neighbors, and they are present with troops or proxies in Libya. They are destabilizing also the situation there. So they have, and of course, they've been occupying part of Cyprus for 50 years now, and they have troubled relations with many other uh, of their neighbors. They have been supporting Azerbaijan in its war against in Armenia. So they are really, let's say, in the. It's not just about against. It's not about Greece and Turkey. It's not a localized thing. It's basically Turkey trying to, let's say, extend its influence through basically, especially military presence in the all its immediate neighborhood. I mean, the only country with which. Turkey does not have, interestingly, let's say, a kind of um, of a conflict on, on the border is Iran, even actually the Turkish, Turkish friends, they say that the Turkish-Iranian border is one of the oldest in the world, I think it's from the 17th century. The only point in Turkey's borders where basically there's some tranquility. But mm-hmm. what you mentioned, this is, I think, for me, the biggest, let's say, challenge right now is that Turkey, while remaining a NATO ally, I mean, it's part of NATO. And I don't think, I mean, this is my assumption, I don't think that it will ever leave NATO, or at least this is how I see it now. It has exactly developing a relationship with Russia that is more and more of a concern, not just for Greece, but for the rest of the West. And you, you mentioned, I mean, first of all, they don't implement the sanctions that the West, the European Union, the US, by the way, other countries, including Japan, have done following the the Russian invasion. So heavy sanctions, Turkey has been um, a safe haven for for Russian even oligarchs. Secondly, Russian investments. I mean, people are the biggest Russian investment in the world in general is actually the Russian uh, built nuclear plant in Southeastern Turkey. So this is, it's a civilian, of course, nuclear plant, but still, and this is a cause of concern. And as you mentioned, I mean, uh, well, and friendly relations between uh, uh, Erdogan and Putin. They meet quite, and interestingly enough, Erdogan participated in the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization Summit a few months ago. So he was there with the Russian leader, with the Chinese leader, I think the Iranian leader was there. So it was it was a bit awkward to see a NATO country, uh, let's say, being represented in that group. And, and of course, the purchase of Russian um, missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, the S-400, which I I lived through that when I was working at NATO as a matter of fact, and that was actually a deal breaker because it was really, first of all, it's a NATO ally, which is buying Russian weaponry. That's the first time, at least to my knowledge, that this has happened. And secondly, exactly, it's putting into, um, let's say it's jeopardizing NATO allies' security, both the F-35, but also NATO's missile defense system. So it was really, and I remember at the time, the the NATO Secretary General, the current one, Jens Stoltenberg had tried, uh, on many occasions, basically, and uh, other officials to persuade Turkey to, let's say, backtrack on this deal because it was really, it is really a huge challenge. So Turkey, and and, and last but not least, and this is the other thing, since 2005, officially Turkey has uh, opened accession negotiations to join with the European Union and the, the 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 let's say the troubling part is actually since 2005 instead of actually the relations between Turkey and European Union to be growing the two let's say are drifting apart turkey unfortunately is slowly but steadily moving away from the values that the European Union represents so instead of actually getting closer and trying to, how to say to to um uh to accept the values, the principles that the European Union and actually Western nations are, are, uh, have espoused, Turkey is drifting. And this is actually a very worrying trend. I mean, we're seeing a slow but steady drift of Turkey away from the West. And even if institutionally, Turkey, as I said, may never leave NATO, in the end of the day, we are seeing Turkey moving away from NATO de facto. And this is something that, as I said, is a huge cause for concern. I think for Greece, but also for the West.
0: Yeah, Alexandros, when I, when I was National Security Advisor, you know, I I, uh, I told our team that I think that would be the, the most significant shift in the geopolitical landscape since the, the the end of the Cold War, and it would be profoundly against us. And and we tried everything we could, you know, to try to to, to bring Turkey back closer to the West and to recognize that's where Turkey's future was. But uh, one of the things that troubled me about the Turks is the degree to which the Turkish controlled media continues to spout anti-American propaganda and I used to meet with Ibrahim Colin, my, my counterpart, with translated passages and say what's going on? you know I, I thought we were allies. how is this possible and and I would try to you know use examples of other countries that had engaged in demagoguery and disinformation against the United States and said hey their, their track record isn't great. they wind up in a pretty bad place. Turkey is as you know is experiencing hyperinflation. Uh, Turkey has a high degree of of youth uh, unemployment. Uh, the 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 economic remedies uh, that they put in place have been the opposite of, of what economists say they should do. Right? They've kept interest rates low and keep printing money, which is exacerbating inflation. Uh, 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 President Erdogan just did another big give out to the population. You know, in in advance of of the election in May. What do you think the the trajectory is in Turkey? I mean, Turkey at eighty percent of Turkey's trade is with Europe. I mean, it seems like it seems like they're their own worst enemies with these policies.
2: I think, yeah, I mean, economically at least, yeah, they, they survive to a large extent, I understand, because other countries starting, I mean, with Russia or some other countries in the region are just basically pumping money into the Turkish economy. They're basically giving money so that the Turkish economy can survive, It's—it's it's, which is something that is completely artificial. It's not- and this is
0: gutter on- as well, we should talk about maybe a little bit. Yeah. yeah.
2: So it's not something that it's as I say, it's it's a normal process. It's not like the Turkish economy. As a matter of fact, if there wasn't this external support, Turkish economy would be even more dire straits. What I hear is actually precisely that a lot of the people, the middle class are suffering. I mean, inflation has skyrocketed and exactly official figures, which might be a 70 or 8%, are not necessarily representing the reality on the ground. That's another also issue, whether the statistics that they're giving, the, the figures are actually... Um, the the real ones and so and but but it seems like right now that basically the president Erdogan is is trying to do everything to make to make sure that he will win this election so he's just pumping money giving money away giving subsidies giving whatever he can to make sure that he maintains some support. Uh, I saw a recent poll I mean I just today I saw but I don't know again whether polls are, let's say, the numbers are to be trusted or not is an open question. It's not like they um, that they were saying that Erdogan's party is at 36 percent while the opposition is at 50 percent. So that's and I saw this, I think, uh, this morning, which is an interesting perspective. I don't know whether this, as I say, figures are. Reflecting no, I beyond. think it
0: could, it could be true. You know, but of course, what he's done is he's indicted uh, his, his his main opposition Candidate, the mayor of Istanbul, and and is trying to disqualify him from from the election, which doesn't sound very democratic to me. So I think I think uh, I think he is uh, he is feeling the pressure. And of course, in the last mayoral uh, mayoral elections, uh, he actually didn't like the result of the Istanbul election, demanded a, a second election, and then and then his party lost by an even wider margin. So uh, I'll tell you, Alexander, it does seem as if uh, the AKP, this is Erdogan's party. Is becoming less and less popular for for good reason it is it's becoming less and less popular for many
2: reasons and that's why also they have to rely more on the coalition partner which is the mhp which is actually the the, the nationalist party they're not necessarily an islamist party they're quite secular but still they represent a deep strong embedded nationalism and this the combination of these is actually creating an explosive mix in the sense that, and this is actually our biggest fear, that because of internal, let's say, challenges and because they, you know, there's always the rallying behind the flag feeling that, you know, if uh, they see that things are not going the right direction, they might try to provoke some crisis with another country. It could be in Greece, it could be Syria, it could be somewhere else, I I, I don't know, precisely in order to, you know, let's say, get support, that the support that they're missing. And this is something that for us, is, is, is uh, something that we are really worried about, that this could happen in the next month. We hope that it will not happen, but we cannot exclude it.
0: You know, I'd just like to just talk to you more broadly about the, the broader geostrategic competitions. I mean, it seems like three former empires are trying to extend uh, their influence and control. Russia, obviously, uh, as, as we know, in, in, in Ukraine and in the Black Sea region, but also, I mean, all the way to West Africa and, and Libya uh, and in Syria, of course, the Iranians have for, for decades now attempted to keep the Arab world perpetually weak and enmeshed in conflict so they could extend influence across the Gulf states and, and threaten Israel with it with destruction. And Turkey is playing in this in this game as, as well as well, trying to play an important role uh, from the Western Balkans, which we should talk more about and, and, and what Russia is doing there. Uh, all the way, as you mentioned, to to North Africa. How do you think this plays out, this competition between three former empires uh, who are using a broad range of means uh, to extend their influence and and to extend their influence at the expense of sovereignty uh, of other nations? Well, to
2: begin with, I mean, it's extremely worrying because in the end of the day, and I don't know to what extent also we, the West, have not been present enough because they have covered, especially in Syria, those three former empires, they have covered the vacuum that has been left by basically the fact that we are no longer present there or that we didn't have a strong presence from the beginning. And they have taken advantage of that. What is very interesting and I see that is that they are basically in the end of the day, three strategic competitors. They're competing for the same more or less. I mean, I won't say the same, but still regions that overlap. Starting also, I mean, with, with the Middle East, with Syria, but you can look also at the Caucasus, Central Asia. So these are places where these three, as I mentioned, three former empires are strategic competitors. But it's what is very interesting and unfortunately scary is that they have might they have found a modus vivendi a way to live side by side and putting aside, let's say, their their differences for uh, for a time. They're basically kind of they have conducted especially in Syria I've seen this kind of informal truce about you know who has a sphere of influence and how far they can go and sometimes okay this this truce is being disturbed I mean you know and then there's there's some small uh because and in the end of the day they never face each other they face actually proxies they use proxies on the ground beat um I mean Turkey, this is, for
0: this is the, the clashes in Idlib a, a couple of yes. years ago for example yeah
2: Exactly, and 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 actually, uh, so exactly in Idlib, where basically Turks are supporting, let's say, some parts of the Syrian opposition mixed with radical Islamic groups, the Iranians, of course, especially the Iranians, and actually. After the, the, the war in, in Ukraine, less the Russians, I heard that the Russians have reduced their foothold on Syria, which, by the way, has been to the advantage of Iran. The Iranians are supporting Assad like they did since the beginning, but now they have more leeway because the Russians also are moving out. But still, they're strategic competitors, but as I say, they have found, till let's say they want to settle their differences, they have found a modus vivendi. And interestingly enough, also the same thing has happened between Russia and Turkey in Syria. Excuse me, in Libya, where again they, in the end of the day, they were supporting originally opposing camps, but they found a way of uh, of um, right. Of, this is say, Turkey
0: who supports the government of National Accord in the West, and and then Russia supports, you know, the the forces uh, in in the East under uh, uh, General uh, Haftar. Haftar, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, although the East also is, was supported and is supported by Egypt, by the Emirates. I mean, there were other countries, there were other players. And Qatar was also involved in the, in the West together with Turkey. So it's, it's not, let's say, as black and white. But still, there was always, let's say, um, a balance, a, a shaky balance taking place. Uh, so, and, and, you know, they have even this Astana process, I think it's called, that they have the three countries, I mean, Russia, Turkey and Iran, talking about Syria among themselves, which is, again, it's interesting because Europe, the United States, other major players in the in the, the world are basically outside this thing. And this is actually, in the end of the day, what will happen is going to be detrimental to our interests. And this is... Um, and, this it's is...
0: De- and it's detrimental, of course, to the people of Syria who have suffered tremendously, Absolutely. the Absolutely. people of Libya. And Alexander, this is one of the things I regret so much is that you know after the intervention in Libya the Obama administration in an effort to avoid what they regarded as the mistakes of the Bush administration in in Iraq actually exceeded those mistakes by by engineering a change of the regime and then really doing nothing, the United States and and our our NATO partners, to shape the political outcome after the war. And as you've already mentioned, when there's a vacuum, malign actors move into that vacuum. And I think that's what's been perpetuating this this civil war in, in, in Libya.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the, the only reason I think that there's no that there's no more fighting right now in Libya is that both parties are completely exhausted, <laughs> uh, first of all. And secondly, they have, let's say, de facto divided the country into two. And I mean, I, I've been to, to Libya on several occasions, and it's like moving, as I say, officially, of course, it's still one country, but actually the West doesn't control the East, and the East doesn't control the West. I mean, even on basic things. It's not like People can, you know, drive from uh, Tripoli to go to Benghazi or vice versa. I mean, this is uh, so.
0: Uh... And, and if people say like, OK, why should we care about that? Well, we should care about it because, first of all, it's a missed opportunity. It's a, it's a vast country. It's an oil rich country, but it only has had at the time about six and a half million people in right. the, in the country in terms of. Population to secure and to get to a to to a political outcome, and and as as our, our viewers I'm sure know, Libya has been not only a source for refugees pouring into Europe, but a, a huge transit point for refugees who are fleeing the instability and violence uh, in the Sahel uh, and 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 the uh, Maghreb regions. Precisely,
2: I mean, Libya is very important. I mean, as you mentioned, it's a very
0: rich country, although unfortunately the, the
2: people themselves, they hadn't had them back, ever taken advantage of the, 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 rich, of the oil richness. They haven't, you know, the, the revenues have never been distributed, let's say, in the way that they should. But that's another story. But instability in Libya, first of all, means basically that they're not controlling their borders. So they are becoming, I mean, there's huge migration or refugee flows emanating from Libya, and either, as a matter of fact, they don't control, they cannot control, or they don't want to control. I mean, there are stories even that uh, the Coast Guard is actually assisting traffickers, going especially towards Italy. And this is becoming, I mean, it's a problem now, but in the the years to come, it's gonna become even a bigger problem. And as you mentioned, you mentioned the Sahel. And so the Sahel, very poor part of, uh, let's say, the the region basically between Northern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, including many countries that unfortunately are not democratic, including uh, like Mali, uh, like Chad. And, and I mean, the only, I think, let's say- Burkina K- Faso
0: the, now, which has also Urquina had a- Burkina Faso. Foreign, yeah. And, and just we thrown out the French and brought in uh, Russia's Wagner group, which we, which the United States is just sanctions as, as a terrorist organization.
2: Precisely. And I mean, the only country in the region, I, we were in uh, Niger, in, not like- in near a few weeks ago, I was there. And the president of the country, he was saying, he was kind of the last man standing out because he was the last democratically elected leader of, the, of a country in the region. He said he's surrounded by countries that had coup d'etats, countries where basically terrorist groups, either homegrown or imported are basically active uh, because he mentioned, of course, Mali. He mentioned also Boko Haram in Northern Nigeria. And so, and all this is creating, including and on top of it, uh, population rise. I mean, uh, Niger has 25 million people today. In 2050, it's predicted it's gonna have 75 million people. And Niger, and I'm using this as an example, is the second poorest country in the world, the poorest actually being Afghanistan. And the bottom line is that, you know, 75 million people, if there is terrorism, if there's war, if there's famine, what will they do? Well, they will have to move further north and that means basically, through Libya, towards Europe. So it's becoming, let's say, a, a massive a challenge, uh, security, social, um, humanitarian challenge that basically, especially the Europeans, we will have to to look at. and and it's just basically on our gates. Libya is
0: on the gates of Europe. I
2: mean, it's really so close.
0: And And you know, watch these refugee crises develop? They can only be dealt with at an exorbitant cost once they reach your shores. Yeah. I mean, I think what we've learned, should have learned, uh, certainly from the from the Syrian uh, crisis, is that it is best to help to try to, to try to resolve those problems or alleviate the humanitarian crisis much closer to its origins. And uh, and this is maybe you know the missed opportunity associated with a, a no fly zone or security zone, for example, in uh, in northern Syria at the outset of that civil war. But Alexander, so I want to talk to you more about about how these conflicts don't just stay contained in one particular area. And I wonder if you might share, you know, with our viewers maybe Russia's attempt. What I think is Russia's attempt to to uh, to uh, escalate uh, the conflict in Ukraine horizontally into the Western Balkans. Can you describe the situation in the Western Balkans and 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 uh, and, and why that's of concern to you and and to the leadership in Greece?
2: Well, the Western Balkans, again, it's one of those, if I can call it like that, unfortunately, forgotten region in the world. There was, they were at the center of the world attention in the 90s because of the conflicts in the former Yugoslavia, first Croatia, then Bosnia had and in the late 90s, Kosovo. But since then, people have tended to, let's say, there's no fighting anymore. Well, at least there's no uh, open fighting, but that doesn't mean the situation is more stable. As a matter of fact, the problems that existed uh, already in the 1990s, they're still there with us. And what is really worrying us is basically that uh, they could basically explode or implode at any time. I'll start with the biggest, at least for me, the biggest risk is Bosnia has a governor. a state that basically exists since 95 after the Dayton Accords, but it's a state that everybody admits is basically completely Malfunctioning. It's not functioning at all. I mean, we have two um, entities: the the Muslim, the the, so the Bosnian-Croatian Federation and the Republika Srpska. Two entities bringing the country together, and three ethnicities: Muslims, Croats, and Serbs. And in the end of the day, I mean, there are like three different uh, administrations in one country. And as I said, it's not functioning. This and there is the tendency, of course, and that that's that's something you know that. People could say, and there were some ideas being floated about border changing. So, for example, the Serbs would move in with, let's say, mainland Serbia, the Croats to Croatia, and of course, then we would have the issue of a small Muslim state. Now, this is a recipe for disaster, because if you start redrawing the map of, um, let's say, Europe and redrawing external borders, then there's no, I mean, you open Pandora's box. And by the way, the other uh, big uh, challenge that we're having, and again, I wouldn't say forgotten, but is is kosovo i mean kosovo is uh, was was declared its independence in uh, i think it became independent 2008 actually hasn't been recognized by i think has been recognized by something like half of the countries of the world it's not a member of the un uh, or of any other major or may, any international organization and the dialogue between belgrade and pristina so on resolving issues because uh, on Kosovo, is not going well at all. And again, there's even there talk about changing the borders. And i say again, this is a recipe for disaster because once you start redrawing the map of the Balkans, that, first of all, will mean more, let's say, bloodshed, more fighting, and then you don't
0: know where it's going to stop. Is it going to be contained or, you know? And, so- there's nothing Russia would like more than to... To say that Kosovo, which was a tremendous success, Kosovo was a success, right? It was. I mean, there, there's no perfect solution to what was going on there, but the United States, uh, NATO, you know, our, our allies. I mean, we we stopped what could would have been a genocide there, you know, and 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 brought peace and stability to a generation now. Uh, to see that reversed, I think would be would be disastrous, obviously for the people of of Kosovo, but it would be it would be a way for Moscow to see to say you know, look, this is, this is the West failing. This is, uh, you know, this is the U.S. and NATO failing.
2: And by the way, sorry, I forgot exactly to touch on the Russia factor because this is very important. And again, it's basically the Russians. And by the way, it's Russia, China, and Turkey. Those are the three, let's say, countries that are entering the Western Balkans in a very dynamic way. And uh, let's say, somewhat unsettling way. And this is to a large extent, again, the fact that we, the West in general, and Europe have basically forgotten that. First of all, and this is something that we think it's it's a mistake, the European perspective of these countries of uh, Serbia, Montenegro, Albania, North Macedonia, basically has been stalled for many years. So they see the prospect of joining the European Union further and going further and further away. And actually some of them, they question whether they will ever join the European Union. And this means that basically their countries, I mean, are for grabs. I'll, I'll give you as an example, Serbia, for example. Serbians are saying they were actually the first in the region to start accession negotiations to join the EU. They have been very frustrated by that. And now, you know, they're saying, if the Europeans don't want us, Chinese are coming and investing heavily. China, for the moment, the presence is more economic. It's not about political. But then the Russians are there also. And the Russians are using all levers whether it's culture, religion, or politics to basically create a stronger influence in Serbia. They're doing it in Montenegro, less uh, in Albania. Uh, They don't have such leverage, but still the Russians are uh, covering a vacuum. Then there is Turkey, which because let's remember that actually, by the way, all this part of the world we're talking about was even 120 years ago was part of the Ottoman Empire. And they are trying to revive, let's say, their presence. And what is very interesting but also very worrying is it's not like they want, and you know, they're trying, for example, the Turkish development agency is actually distributing large sums of money to rebuild or to preserve Ottoman monuments in that region. Now, what is interesting is it's not about houses, fortresses or whatever, it is mosques. And this is, again, they're bringing, let's say, they're trying to bring and not just a a more radical version of Islam back in the Western Balkans. Something that actually, these countries have, you know, there were Muslim populations in many of these countries, but that was never an issue of radical Islam. And now it's becoming again and again.
0: And unfortunately,
2: Turkey is playing a destabilizing factor. And these
0: are the Salafine or the Salafi uh, strain of of Islam, which is a little bit related to the, to Erdogan and the AKP, who are Naqshbandi Sufis. Now, Sufis typically are, are a very mild form of right. uh, of Islam, but the Naqshbandi version of Sufism is also is is, is quite you know conservative. You could say radical, uh, like the Salafi uh, version. And and of course, Alexandros, it, it seems like a lot of this is being funded uh, indirectly by Qatar as well. Yeah,
2: yeah, Qatar has been. I mean has played a major role in, let's say, preserving the Turkish first of all economy, even more than Russia, as a matter of fact. Qatar has, well, it's the host of Al Jazeera. They have supported the Muslim Brotherhood in many countries in the Middle East. And they have been you know, at loggerheads with many of their neighbors in like Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, but also with Egypt, they have supported. So they have been playing a destabilizing role. And Turkey and Qatar had let's say, developed a close relationship, which could be also, and Qatar used, I think they, they they see Turkey as a means of, let's say, exerting a global influence that they themselves on their own, they would not be able. They have the money, but they don't have the means. I mean, it's a small country with a lot of money, uh, while Turkey is, let's say, a bigger country that needs support, and uh, yeah, they are. And by the way, we are trying, and this is something that I heard actually when I was in, 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 in the region, that we and this is something that Greece is also encouraging is other muslim countries for example the united arab emirates to precisely invest in that region in order let's say to stop the radical islam and bring a more moderate islam the emirates they have actually a center for radical radicalization called hadaya and we're trying you know we're trying to use all the means to basically bring a more let's say moderate islam in that region precisely to avoid becoming Again, um, a safe haven for for extremists.
0: You know, one one of the other countries, of course, that is that is extending its influence through funding and and uh, and loans and infrastructure development is is China. And and I know that China has invested in, in, in Greek ports and Greek infrastructure. Could you just share what what are your concerns about China's activity and its use of really a form of economic influence? to advance its interests in the Mediterranean region?
2: Well, China, first of all, was not present in that region for a very long time. Actually, they, they were not ever, but now they, they are, let's say, becoming more and more present in the Mediterranean. They bought the port of Pires, or the main port of Athens. of, of its, It has become, if I'm not wrong, the biggest or the second biggest port actually in the Mediterranean. They have invested heavily there And they're using it as an entry point to for their trade to Europe and actually now they want to they have this this uh, initiative called the belt and road initiative, which is basically they want to create. Highways I mean access ways either by road or by rail through Greece, but also other countries in order to reach the European markets so for now at least China is trying to let's say by the infrastructure, by the way as I mentioned China is also very present in Serbia and other countries they are buying and they're contrary to the other countries they are not visible, they're, they're not trying to be visible, they try to do that in a, in a let's say very subtle way and the other thing that I always say is that China is looking at the long game, they're not you know seeking let's say short-term advantage or short-term influence, they're really investing thinking about the long-term and they are creating, let's say a presence gradually that is expanding and that they might use, be able to use afterwards to exert political influence. Um, and by the way, many people have um, in, the, in the West, they have complained to Greece about selling its sport to China back in 2013. And, and I remember the argument was always, yes, but at the time it was during the economic crisis Greece was actually forced by its debtors to privatize uh, several, let's say, big state-owned assets, including the port. And when they privatized, the only bidder, the only country that was actually willing to, let's say, invest, and even at at the very turbulent period, was China. So they really took advantage of the situation which was created, and they, they made a
0: great deal out of that. So... Alexander, so I would tell you though, of course, some deals are too good to be true, you know, and I think that might be the case. There might yeah. be some buyer's remorse there uh, in years to come. But but uh but I, I know that there there this is a this is a point of contention between Greece and Germany in particular after after the uh, after the bailout. Um but I'll tell you, I mean, let's I mean we have got we don't have a lot of time left and I want to start talking about Greece more. You know, how how about uh how about the recovery that Greece has, has, has undertaken? Uh, I think that that, that uh, you know that there has been um, a, a great deal of, of enthusiasm uh, b- behind you know the economic growth uh, that uh, that Greece has has uh, has been able to achieve. Uh, Prime Minister uh, Mitsotakis has an election coming up; he's quite popular. It, it seems like many Greeks, the vast majority, think he's done a very good job. Could you just talk about really how Greece has come out? of that financial crisis and and what you think the prospects are these days from from an economic perspective but also in some of the key initiatives that the that the government's undertaking the green energy initiative for uh for example
2: okay well that's very interesting actually there are several initiatives one of these initiatives that i think that is has transformed the country and again this is something that we see also i mean basically the citizens the men and the, the people in the street is uh, the digital uh, revolution that is taking place in Greece, which is something that is not so much talked about, but it's really becoming, by the way, one of the most popular ministers in the Greek government is the Minister of G- Digital Governance, because he has done, I mean, as I say, we have transformed a country that was very sclerotic, bureaucratic, a lot of paperwork, and moved everything, let's say, in the digital sphere. So we have, and the Mitsotakis government, the government, here is tried and this is I think he I mean has succeeded to an extent of course it's it's not just in three or four years that you can achieve all the results to make the country attractive for foreign investment and this is something uh, that he has started doing and he's building on that and by the way when I'm talking about foreign investment it's from everywhere not just from Europe we're looking at other markets for example or other countries and we have developed strategic partnerships with several Gulf countries, including, for example, the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, which are slowly but steadily now thinking about transforming this strategic relationship, which was based on security, as a matter of fact, in the beginning, into also an economic partnership. So we are trying, I mean, the the, the government is trying to make, let's say the country attractive for investment. The economy has started exactly precisely uh, because there is some prospects for stability, including political stability, that helps also investors to be attracted. So it's not a basket case of failure. Greece is actually... And as, as somebody was saying to me, the Greece is no longer in the headlines. Greece is actually boring because nobody speaks yeah. about it. And I said, this is good news, because the fact that we are not in the headlines, that means that you know things are working well. And I said, there are a lot of things. And the other thing that is very important is... Greece is trying to become, and this is uh, an energy hub, both in terms of uh, gas. And for example, Greece has already an LNG terminal in, uh, in, close to Athens and is actually building another one, northeastern Greece, uh, which is going to be very important in the diversification of supply of gas, especially. And, and,
0: and, and for our viewers, I just want our viewers to just imagine the map. Think about all of that Russian gas infrastructure flowing out of Russia, right, into the Black Sea region, into, into Europe and and, and uh, into Southeastern Europe. And now think about gas going outward from Greece in the opposite direction. It's a really important initiative. And and I'm I'm very enthusiastic about that, not only because of the energy supply that you'll provide, but the geostrategic impact of that, Alexandros. Precisely. And exactly. It's not
2: just basically... Uh, Greece is not an energy producer. We don't produce. Although, we're actually we started now, gas exploration off the island of Crete in, in, in southwestern Greece, so between, uh, let's say, Crete and, and 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 Libya. And we'll see. I mean, they, they say that their promising results might be coming by by the spring. We'll see. But Greece is a transit point for gas, both uh, from uh, places like Azerbaijan, but also by ship. So by by ship, LNG can be from the United States, from Algeria, from you name it. I mean, there is no, uh, uh, from Egypt, actually Israel and Egypt are also producing gas. So, And this is very important because precisely we uh, help also other countries, not just Greece becoming more independent of Russian gas, but also countries like our neighbors, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, North Macedonia. The other thing of course is exactly, you mentioned clean energy. We are making a lot of efforts to move, I mean, to you know, zero emissions by 2050. I mean, this is this is of course the target. Although, unfortunately, the 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 crisis that we are the, the situation we're facing right now is, is is a challenge. But clean energy, Greece has a lot of potential, and we're trying to do that. Solar energy, wind energy. I mean, we have really things that we can take advantage. Actually, the Aegean Sea is one of the seas where there's wind blowing all the time. So and sun, well, we're not. <laughs> We yeah, I think the time. statistic
0: is 50 percent of your energy for renewables already is that I think that's right
2: it, it might be I, I don't know if it's 50 percent but it has grown substantially yeah and we have even actually a project in a, in an island in southeastern Greece called astipalia which we're transforming together with the, with the, the German company into a green island where basically all the cars for example and the local buses and everything will be Uh, replaced by electric cars so there will be no let's say petrol uh, engines on the island and we're going to use this as a test case to see how we can expand this so we are really um, doing that a lot but if i may just also and this is related also to what we're discussing about energy and i just wanted to highlight also another very important factor which is also the developing bilateral relationship between greece and united states or united states and greece which i mean right now we are going through, if I can call it like that, a honeymoon. I mean, the relationship between the two countries is the closest it has been in many decades. Definitely uh, far, far above the the, the last, let's say, um, four or five decades. Just to give you an example, um, in 1990, so just at the, the end of the Cold War, United States and Greece, they signed an agreement. It's called the Mutual Defense Cooperation Agreement, which uh, provided for... American presence on the ground, uh, use of uh, Greek bases for military, for US military, um, uh, well, uh, Navy, Air Force, uh, land forces, the army. And this was in, uh, this agreement was was actually amended twice in the last three years. It was- In 2019 amended and
0: in 2020, yes. Right. Exactly.
2: And yeah. the reason why it was amended because Precisely, we wanted both countries wanted to increase the American foothold on in Greek territory. And interestingly enough, one of the um, bases or Greek, let's say, bases where actually the U.S. has invested is the port, precisely, of Alexandrupolis, the port I just mentioned, where we are constructing an LNG terminal. Now, why this is important? This is, I mean, I don't have a map here, and unfortunately, but it's northeastern Greece, close to the border with Turkey. But it provides a direct access point to Bulgaria, Romania, and then further north to Central and Eastern Europe. Why this is important? This is important because in case of crisis, like now, for example, American forces or allied forces, for that matter, can move very easily up and protect, let's say, NATO's eastern flank, and that without having to go into the Black Sea, which is, uh, well, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more of a challenge. First of all, because of Russian presence in the Black Sea, which unfortunately has increased substantially. So the strategic importance of, let's say, the Greece has increased to US eyes. That's one of the base. The other base, of course, is Bay in Crete, which is, again, it's projecting, let's say, it's, it's um, let's say, uh, in the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean. Again, a very troubled area. And It's very interesting that the Sixth Fleet that had, let's say, substantially retreated or retreated, not being so present in those waters, now is becoming more, I mean, we see aircraft carriers, for example, in Suda Bay, something we hadn't seen for US aircraft carriers for many, many years. So I think that this is also a very important development. And uh, and just on the symbolics, and then I will stop with that. The symbolism was actually 1990, the agreement was signed by the then Greek foreign minister and the then um, US ambassador in Athens. The two amendments were signed. Both both amendments were signed by the successive secretaries of state, Mike Pompeo, and Antony Tony Blinken, and the Greek foreign minister. Which even in that, it just the symbols of who signs shows the importance of these agreements.
0: Yeah, I, I really think Greek-U.S. relations are, are on the upswing and and, uh, and and getting stronger every day, and and uh, it's something we ought to celebrate and. And Alexander, I guess what I'd like to do is just ask you a couple of final questions here. What, what, what do you think we need more? We need to do to strengthen the, the U.S. Greek relationship and cooperate as, as we've described all the problems that we're that we're facing together. And then maybe, maybe you have a message for Greek Americans. As you know, there's a really vibrant Greek American community in the United States. Thank goodness, because it's the best food. that you can have. We have two great Greek restaurants in Palo Alto, for example. So uh, I'd like to just ask you what your message is for, you know, for Americans in terms of how to strengthen and deepen our relationship. And then, and then maybe for the, for the Greek American community as well.
2: Well, for the, let's say the bilateral relationship, I think that we need, and and we're doing it. It's not like we're not doing it, but we need to expand, let's say the cooperation of the people to people level. The government-to-government government level, we have reached really a very, let's say, high point. But now we need to focus more on cooperation between, well, academic institutions, for example, you know, the economy. I mean, we are very happy to see many more American tourists actually coming to Greece. So there's more the people-to-people engagement at all levels, let say, the economy. Again, U.S. investments in Greece are not so substantial. I think that this is something that is not reflected in the excellent relationship that we have at the government level. And... Uh, some, one of the issues also that we are trying to invest is, of course, in, engage also Congress, because we think that is also OK. One thing is our relationship with successive administrations, like successive Greek governments, but the other is also the Congress, who represent, are representing at the end of the day, of course. It's another representative of the people. When it comes to Greek Americans, by the way, I've got family in the United States. Uh, a brother of my father emigrated to the States in the 50s. I have a family there, a cousin of mine was actually a US Navy officer for several years. So I'm very proud of him and the family. So it's not something that it's far away from me. Um, what is very important, and I think that this is, we have to realize, especially us in Greece, is that the Greek American community has evolved substantially. It's a different community than it used to be, let's say, 40, 50, or 60, or even 70 years ago. It's not the, let's say, the poor people had emigrated looking for a better future. Now they're much more embedded into the well, they're part of the American society, they are American citizens, um, and they have some linkage to Greece. And the 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 I think that we have to start addressing them as, as a bridge between the two countries while respecting. Respecting this specific character they have, they are proud to be of Greek origin, but they are also proud to be American citizens. And I think this is something that we always need to be aware and encourage.
0: You know, Alexander said, "I mean, I think it's the greatest strength of our country is is that we that we do attract uh, people from around the world who then become just a, a great source of strength uh, for America, as well as a bridge back to the countries from from which they which they which they came." And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, I'm going to do my part and, and plan a uh, plan a vacation to Greece here in the next year, for sure. <laughs> but i Ale- well, are Alexander- more than welcome.
2: <laughs> if I could be of any help, I'd <laughs> <would I> like <laughs> glad to host you.
0: <laughs> Alexandros Papayuano, um, I, I can't thank you enough on behalf of the Hoover Institution, on behalf of our viewers, for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. It was great to see you. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, General, I, I mean, I have no words So thank you for giving me this opportunity. It was really a very interesting and an extremely interesting discussion for me. And thank, thank you, you for Alejandro's. giving me the opportunity to talk about this troubled part of the
0: world. <laughs> well, I'm glad Greece is there in the middle of it. Thank you, Alexandros. Thank you very much, General. Thank you.
1: Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.